John chapter 9. So please open up your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have one under the seat back in front of you, and John chapter 9 is on page 1064. 1064. So for the next 40 minutes, we're going to be attempting something that is impossible according to human strength. We're attempting to see the true identity and character of Jesus. And this requires supernatural strength. And so it'd be foolish of us to start with any other way than asking the Lord's help. So if you would, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, it's glory. Amen. John chapter 9, as was already prayed today, is the story of Jesus and a blind man. So I wanted to begin today with a bit of an eye exam. Maybe it's been a while since you've been to the eye doctor, and so I wanted to start with a colorblind test. So in front of you, you can see one of these. Maybe you've seen them before, and it's very simple. You just call out the number that's on there. So go ahead and call out what number you see. Congratulations, you are not colorblind, except for maybe the 44 that I heard over here. Uh, But one thing you might not know about me is that when I look at this circle, this is what I see. It's pretty confusing. Uh, So I am about as colorblind as you can get. Uh, I still see some colors, but when I look at that circle, it looks exactly like the one that came before it. And when I was growing up, this caused all kinds of problems. So I'm red and green colorblind, and so Christmas was just a very confusing time. Uh, I also didn't really understand what all the hype was about the autumn leaves changing colors. Looks the same to me. So, But through it all, I learned something important. The first step for me, accurately identifying colors, was admitting that I can't see them. The colorblind people who are in denial, they end up making fools of themselves as they adamantly claim that that's blue and it's purple. And, but the ones who have come to the place that I inevitably had to get to is that I can't see the colors, but if I have the help of another, like my sweet wife, who will tell me, no, that is red, Andrew, and I will actually begin to understand the correct colors. And this is the way things work spiritually, too. Last week, we learned uh, a similar truth, that you must admit your slavery before you can be free. And this week, we're going to see that those who are spiritually blind, but arrogantly claim that they do see, will in fact never see. And their guilt remains. But those who come to Christ by admitting their sin and their blindness and their need, they will see like never before. And specifically, they'll see Jesus, his true identity. And this is really important because knowing and seeing Jesus matters. John 17.3 says, eternal life is bound up in knowing Jesus. And in Philippians 3, Paul says, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So knowing and seeing Jesus is far more precious than anything in life. And yet, just as Ryan was praying, we are all born blind, spiritually blind. 
And so we need to care a great deal about how blind eyes can be opened to spiritual truths. And just to catch you back up, so we're in the Gospel of John. We've been working our way straight through it, and um, a lot has happened in the book. So Jesus has been showing his glory through these miraculous works. He's actually done five of them so far, five miraculous signs. So just catching you up to speed, in chapter 2, he turned water into wine to show that he is the one who brings about the new and better covenant. And then in chapter 4, he heals the official son. And then just later, chapter 5, he heals the invalid by the pool. All of this showing he has authority over sickness and death. And then in chapter 6, he feeds the multitudes to show he's the bread of life. And then right after that, he walks on water to show that he is truly God. But despite all of this mounting evidence to who Jesus is... There's actually been mounting opposition to Jesus, so much so that in the last chapter, the Jews picked up stones to throw at Jesus to kill him. He was saying, he is God, and he's their only hope of being free, and they didn't like that. And now in chapter 9, he's going to demonstrate again that he's their only hope for seeing clearly. And it's going to be through his sixth sixth sign, that's hard to say, sixth sign of healing the blind man. And we don't actually know how many days or hours came before the attempt at stoning him and this miraculous healing. Um, John doesn't give us any time markers, and it's helpful to remember these chapter divisions weren't original to John. And so when you look at the book, at least, if you just read straight through it, there's it is like coming right on the heels of this. So it's important to keep last, last week's story in mind as we come to this week's story in John chapter 9. And our plan today is a little bit unique. So our plan is to be just enjoying and impacted by this story as we walk straight through it. And at the end, I'm going to give three applications. Uh, but instead of Three main points for our sermon. We're just going to go straight through the story, and then we'll have three applications at the end. So please, if you haven't already done so, open up John chapter 9 and look down with me at verse 1. And Joey, is this sounding okay? Is it a little too loud on this? Okay, perfect. I just haven't been up here in a while, and it's in my head. So, all right. Looking at John chapter 9 in verse 1. This is one of my favorite stories in all of John. So, Lakeside, hear the word of the Lord. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We'll stop there. I'm really thankful for the disciples because they just have no filter, and a lot of times they ask the questions that other people are too embarrassed or shy to ask. And so, just like so many throughout history, they are assuming that trials and sickness are automatically a sign of God's displeasure. Uh, We saw this with Job's counselors. They did this. David often felt this way, like, is something wrong, God? And we often feel this way. And Jesus' words here teach us something important. We can't assume that sickness 
and trials are a sign of God's displeasure. We can't assume that. We can't assume it about ourselves or about others. And as we're going to see today, sickness often demonstrates the power of God, either through people's miraculous spirit-filled response to the trials they're in or through miraculous healing. And so I just want to, at the outset, make a brief comment to you. If you are here and struggling with sickness or chronic pain or whatever it might be, I want you not to think in these moments, God, why are you mad at me? Instead, think, what are the works of God that you want to put on display through my sickness? Maybe it's your testimony in trials. Maybe it's the picture of how the church can come around you and support you. And maybe it is, even through miraculous healing. But whatever it is, we shouldn't automatically think that our sickness and trials are just a sign that God is mad at us. Instead, we should see it's just an opportunity for the works of God to be displayed. And that's what we have here in our story. This man's blindness it's just the stage. It's just the backdrop for the works of God to be about to be displayed in John chapter 9. So look down at verse 4. Jesus continues, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus says again, he's, this is the second time he said it, I am the light of the world. And then he speaks in this cryptic, metaphorical way about his death here. So think about it. Night is the time when the sun goes away, when it's buried behind the earth. And Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, and the time is coming when the light of the world will be buried and hidden from your eyes. So we need to get to work now, is what he's saying. And Jesus goes on to do that. He gets to work by demonstrating that he is the light of the world by opening the eyes of the blind man. Just as it's impossible to see without light, so it's impossible for this man to see without Jesus. Now, the healing is done in a really odd way. I mean, I feel like you can't miss it when you read this story. Jesus is doing something that I, you know, as an eight-year-old would have done as a child. He spits on the ground, and then he stirs it up into mud, and then most surprisingly, he takes the mud and he smears it on the man's face. He anoints his eyes, as it says here. It's really odd. And if we keep reading, I think there's at least one or two explanations for this. So we'll keep looking through the book or through the chapter. But the point is, after being sent to the pool called Sent, the man comes back seeing. John just like tacks that on at the end. like, And he came back seeing. And it's because if physical sight was the point of the story, it would end here and that would be a big climax, but it's not. It's not the point of the story. It's just the metaphor. It's just the stage for the rest of the story. And so look down at what comes next in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. 
Others said, no, but, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So, so now the word starts to get out, and this scene is really funny to me because it just shows the way people love to talk and we don't love to listen. Uh, you're trying to, I, I feel like we do this all the time. It reminds me, so like you've got these people just confidently saying, uh, he's not the beggar. Uh, he's somebody else. All the, t- all the while, like they're the expert on his identity. All the while, he's standing there like, I am the man. I would know. Uh, it reminds me of like these ridiculous family arguments that we can get in. Not my family, of course. Maybe, maybe yours, but you're trying to figure out who left the milk out. And so you start arguing with your sibling, and you get so carried away that you start to claim to know more about what they did that morning than they themselves know. Suddenly, you're the expert on their life. Maybe they were daydreaming or hallucinating or in the matrix, but you know they left the milk out this morning. And it's just, people do this all the time. And it's hard for us to admit we don't know. It's hard for us to admit we're clueless and might not have all the answers. And if they would just listen, they would learn so much. But that's hard to do as we're going to see time and time again. But we're also going to see, we're also just starting to get introduced to the man speaking here. And we're going to learn a lot about him. Uh, First, I think it's important, if you look down at verse 12, you'll see Jesus didn't tell him where to find him. He didn't really tell him anything at all about who he was. So even though the man's physical eyes have been opened, he's really still in the dark about Jesus. He doesn't know hardly anything about him. And we're also going to see, as the story continues, that this man has plenty of what you might call sass. He has a ton of spunk and a big personality, and it makes this story really fun. Uh, But after the neighbors hear the man, so they at least listen to him somewhat. They bring him to the Pharisees, which to me is really surprising. Jesus has just been talking again and again about how dangerous the Pharisees are and warning the people, but they still trust the Pharisees enough to where when they're in a pinch and they don't know what to do, they bring the man to the Pharisees to sort this situation out. And look down at verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, he said, he is a prophet. So we'll stop there. We see this sign actually took place on the Sabbath. That's some new information here. This was the day the Pharisees religiously rested on. If you know anything about the Gospels, you know that they made up all kinds of rules about what you can't do on the Sabbath because they wanted so much to rest on it. And now they are coming to the man, and notice they're specifically asking him how his eyes were opened. They want to learn just how many rules was Jesus breaking on the Sabbath. It was already against their rules to heal a man that didn't have a life-threatening disease on the Sabbath. And so was, 
ironically, needing anything like dough or, probably in their eyes, needing anything like mud. And many of them thought it was breaking the Sabbath to anoint a man's eyes. And so Jesus is just breaking rules left and right to heal this man. And the Pharisees want to get the dirt on Jesus. Terrible pun. Totally intended. But um, they're trying to see how many of the rules he's breaking. But the challenge is that he just healed a man born blind. Like Isaiah 29, 18 speaks of how on the day of the Messiah, the deaf will hear and the blind, the eyes of the blind will see. This is evidence that the Messiah is here. And they're divided. They don't know what to think. And they, so they start thinking, maybe we can get out of this jam because maybe this is a big hoax. I bet he's not born blind. Let's call his parents in. So look down at verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. So there goes the theory of the Pharisees, but I want to maybe take a small excursion, a small rabbit trail here to just point out something's off about the way the parents respond. They pawn off this contentious conversation onto their son and look down at verse 22 to see why. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So now you can see in our story of John, not only has the opposition against Jesus been rising, also the opposition against anybody who trusts in Jesus and confesses him has been rising. And get this. Even though Jesus just healed their son, they are not willing to confess him. And even they're not willing to protect their son. They're so afraid of the shame of men that they just have their son put back into this contentious, criticizing, and interrogation with the Pharisees so that now he is in danger of being kicked out of the the synagogues and not they themselves. And parents, I just want to briefly challenge you on this. And this applies to grandparents or caregivers. God has called you to nurture and care for those who he has given to you. There may be times, I mean, there's times when they, they must receive consequences for their actions, and that's good and necessary. I'm not talking about that, but so often we unnecessarily and even unjustly throw our kids under the bus. If we're late, we can come in and say, sorry I'm late. Little Joe over here thought it was the right time to break out the finger paint three minutes before we had to leave. And we just throw our kids under the bus. We're so afraid of the critique of people that we use our kids as a shield 
instead of being a shield for them. May we never be like these parents who just push their son back into this place of potentially being shamed and expelled by the religious leaders. Instead, let us be like our Heavenly Father, who is described in Psalm 18 as our rock in whom we take refuge, our shield and stronghold. May we be that for our kids. Now back to, back to our story. Rabbit trail done. Blind man is put back into the ringer. And we're going to see that he doesn't share the same fear of men that his parents are so afraid of. So look down at verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And this statement is just packed with irony. And John loves to highlight these statements that are so ironic because John's a great writer and he's highlighting this. They've apparently, the Pharisees have come to an agreement. Okay, Jesus is a sinner. And now they want this man to confess the same blasphemy that they just confessed. And so they tell him, give glory to God. Give glory to God, even though they are uttering blasphemy by saying God's son is a sinner. And now they want this blind man to utter the same thing, that the, tr- the second person of the Trinity, the son of God, is a sinner. Think about how contradicting they are right now. They're doing the opposite of what they're commanding the man to do. And look down at verse 25 to see how the blind man responds. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. This is a beautiful statement. It's, it's where we get our hymn, Amazing Grace, seeing once I was blind, now I see. But I do think it's interesting that he either doesn't know or probably more likely he doesn't want to comment on whether or not Jesus is a sinner. He's trying to stay out of it, but it all changes when the Pharisees just keep pressing him further and further. And I love it because they don't know what they're getting into. They are no match for this man's wit and clever responses. So look down at verse 26. The Pharisees said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Once again, they're trying to get more information on Jesus' Sabbath breaking. But the man, he is not having it. He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. And I bet he left saying, well, that got out of hand. (laughs) That got out of hand fast. 
it seemed like the trouble began when the Pharisees began insulting the man who had just healed him. They're insulting Jesus. And it begins with their persistent failure to even entertain the idea that Jesus might be holy and good and worth listening to. So the not-so-blind-anymore man comes to Jesus' defense and says, Look, we have never heard of a blind person from birth being healed. Why don't you see that Jesus is from God? But the Pharisees, they've been unwilling to listen to Jesus. They're unwilling to look at the signs that he is putting forward, and they are definitely unwilling to listen to this man. They're in an echo chamber of lies and self-deceit. And so they insult him with the same logic the disciples struggled with earlier. They say, your blindness shows that you are guilty of sin. You were born in utter sin. They insult him. And they cast him out. He receives the condemnation that his parents were so afraid of receiving themselves. He is cast out by the Pharisees. And just think about this. This roller coaster day for this man. An average day. A blind beggar on the side of the road. And then, you know, somebody smears mud on his eyes. And then, but then he's healed and restored. But then nobody's listening to him. His voice is ignored. Then his parents basically just hand him back over to the Pharisees to be expelled. And these religious leaders ridicule him and cast him out. And he ends where he began, as an outcast. But despite being cast out by family and leaders, Jesus will not forsake him. This man, he's shown willingness to be insulted for Christ. And so Jesus' words in Matthew 5, they ring true for him. Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So Jesus comes to him and opens his eyes for a second time. Look down at verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This is where our story has been heading all along. I mean, what good is it if the man sees with his eyes, but he misses Jesus? So Jesus comes back to him. He comes back, and the man responds to Jesus like we've been waiting for somebody to respond. He comes honestly and humbly and asks Jesus to help him understand and see. He asks him, who is the Son of Man? And I just want to take a moment because I think some of you are probably asking that same question. The Son of Man is a figure mentioned in Daniel 7. It's the person who stands before the throne of God and receives an everlasting kingdom so that all peoples shall serve him. 
And so, I mean, you think about it. Only someone who is God himself can stand before God like that and can receive all kingdoms and peoples to serve him. And the man in John 9 understands that, which is why when he asks, who is he? And Jesus essentially responds, you're looking at him. The man now sees with his eyes and his heart, and he falls down and worships Jesus, who is truly God. And as we're saying at the beginning, showing the identity of Christ is such a precious gift that Jesus is giving to this man. It's blessing upon blessing from the abundance of his grace and goodness. He shows him who he truly is. But once again, you think that's the end, but our story isn't quite over. Jesus is going to give the explanation for all that's come before. What the whole story means. It's just been an allegory of sorts. This man's blindness and healing, it's an allegory of a deeper spiritual truth. So look down at verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard him say these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Jesus is saying that he came so that the blind would see, but also so that those who see would be blinded. He isn't talking about literal blindness here, but spiritual blindness. He's saying the people who know they are blind, who know they need Jesus, the people who ask what the blind man did, who is he? They are the ones who will be healed and will see him clearly. But, get this, Jesus also came so that those who argue that they see clearly, that they don't need anybody to teach them, that they know they are the ones who will be blinded. Jesus does this again and again. He blinds them. He intentionally heals on the Sabbath day. Think about it. He goes out of his way to heal in such a way that he basically breaks as many of their foolish man-made laws as he can. I think that's why he needs dirt into mud. He's breaking one of their foolish man-made rules. He anoints the man's eyes. He's breaking their laws to push them to the point where they have to choose whether they're going to trust their foolish laws and their own intellect or if they're going to look to Jesus for help. It's really his kindness. He's exposing their blindness. He's calling them to see their need for help. But they're like a blind man at the eye doctor, just yelling at the eye doctor, I see those numbers correctly. They are unwilling to admit that they need help and they can't see. And so our story ends with Jesus saying, their guilt remains. And now that we've walked through this story, I think it's time to start applying it specifically with this example of the Pharisees. So first application would just be recognize your blindness. As I said at the beginning, the first step for me seeing correctly was actually admitting I was colorblind. And yet the Pharisees are unwilling to take that step. They're unwilling to even entertain the thought that they might be blind. 
And if you're here today and you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you do not believe he's necessary for salvation or even maybe that he's strong enough to save you, if you deny one of those things, I just want you to ask yourself, could I be wrong? Is it possible he is everything he says he is? How can you be so sure that you have rightly understood Jesus and the world more accurately than the Bible itself has communicated it? You are one tiny human in a vast universe. Your life is a fleeting moment in the face of eternity, a single note in the concert of time. So how can you be so confident that you have understood these eternal truths about who Jesus is and you can just dismiss him? How can you be so confident? But if you, if you are willing to admit that maybe you don't have all the answers to these lifelong, life-altering questions about who Jesus is and how you can be saved, if you can admit that maybe you're in the dark, then I have good, good news for you. Jesus is the light of the world. And if you come to him, he will open your eyes. And maybe you're saying, what does that look like? What does that look like? It looks like reading your Bibles, which show us Jesus. It looks like asking the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. I know it's hard. Maybe you're on the fence. Ask him for help. It looks like pressing in, even if you know it means you have to give up the sin that you've so long held on to. And through the Spirit and the pages of Scripture, He will open your eyes to the truth of the gospel and the truth will set you free. So approach Jesus in repentance and faith and you will be saved. But if you adamantly claim to see and not need the Bible, not need Jesus, your guilt will remain just like these Pharisees. I would just beg you, please don't do that. Come talk, to, come talk to me, one of the pastors, probably the person sitting next to you. Press in and be willing to recognize your blindness. So that application comes from looking at the Pharisees and Jesus. But our next two applications come when we look at the blind man and Jesus. So these next two are rest and rejoice in Jesus' ability to open the eyes of the blind. So we're going to start with the first one. You must rest in Jesus' ability to open the eyes of the blind. I believe that many of you in this room are wrestling with fears about your relationship with Jesus. Probably more than would admit it. You see others who have it all together, and you seem to wrestle with the same old sins. You see others who just seem to stride forward easily in their Christian life, but you struggle and strain and don't feel like you make any progress, and so you ask yourself, is something wrong with me? Am I really God's child? I want so badly to please Jesus, but it just seems like I fail So maybe he isn't at work in me. My friend, this story should be a sweet comfort to you. If you 
have seen Jesus, if you know that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, then God is at work in your life. There is no other explanation for a blind person seeing Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And again, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It is impossible to see Jesus accurately without the Spirit at work in your life. So rest in that. Something miraculous has happened to you. And that shows God is at work in your life. I could sooner make my eyes see red and green accurately than you could force your heart to see that Jesus is Lord and Savior. You can rest in the fact that Jesus has done that work. The light of the world has dawned in your heart and there will be no sunset. If you see Jesus, that should give you sweet peace and assurance. Rest in Jesus' ability to open the eyes of the blind. And finally, rejoice in Jesus' ability to open the eyes of the blind. We take way too much credit for our salvation. And that steals the joy of our salvation. If we see Jesus It's because our eyes were supernaturally opened. It's because Jesus sought us out, just like he did for this blind man. We were like him, an outcast, and yet Jesus comes to us. He didn't cast us out. He he didn't hide himself. I am a blind man seeing. And if you see Jesus, you are too. Again, he's the light of the world. And without light, you can't see a thing. That's why this man didn't see Jesus until he came and opened his eyes and showed him who he was. And it's the same for you. He came. He came to you and showed you who he was through the scriptures and in your heart. So, when you sing these songs about Christ Remember that they used to mean nothing to you. They used to mean nothing to you. And they still would if it weren't for Christ. But now you can sing these beautiful songs. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He the theme of heaven's praises robed in frail humanity. You can sing none above him, none before him. My God is the ancient of days. And all of this means something to you. Only because the light of the world has opened your eyes. Even think about it this week. When you worship... When you read your Bible and you see truth in it, take a moment to just thank God for it. Don't take it for granted like it's obvious you'd be able to see all these truths. It's not. You wouldn't on your own. Don't take it for granted. Rejoice in it. God has opened your eyes. And I even think about it as we come here in just a minute. 
to the Lord's Supper, this time would mean nothing to us if Jesus hadn't opened our eyes. But because of Christ, it's not a meaningless ritual. It's a precious opportunity of enjoying Christ, remembering who he is. It means something because the light of the world has opened our eyes. So if you would, please just take a moment as we close to pray with me and thank God for opening your eyes. Please, in your heart, pray with me. Jesus, please use the imperfect mud of this sermon to open our eyes. For those who are believers, help us to see your glory. Help us rest and rejoice and rely on you as the light of the world. And I do just ask, Father, if there are any here today who don't know you, Jesus, I beg that you would open their eyes just like you did for this blind man. Just like we're about to sing, I pray that they would, that you would, you would come and speak to their heart and say, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. All the fitness God requires is that you feel your need of Him. Lead them to see and to worship you. And we just praise you and thank you because you've done that for us believers in Christ here. Thank you for leading us to see and worshiping you. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.